I am so excited to see so many of you in person at the Summit of Greatness. And we are announcing today a new episode with Dr. Marielle Bouquet. It's extremely powerful, and I'm even more excited because Dr. Marielle is actually going to be speaking at our upcoming Summit of Greatness event in Columbus, Ohio, September 8th through 10th. So make sure you go to summitofgreatness.com to buy your tickets today to hear her in person, as well as the incredible lineup of speakers that we have. Check out summitofgreatness.com to see all the amazing speakers we have coming September 8th through 10th. Now for the one and only Dr. Marielle Bouquet. When we're in a nervous system response and that's, you know, survival mode, you're in a chronic nervous system yes. overhaul, right? So whenever we are in a fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, any non-essential functions, any non-essential like organ functions, bodily functions, all of that is mildly shut down. And if your cortical brain is not fully functioning in the ways that it, because it's in survival mode, then you're not really gonna get. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, a former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. So many of us love coffee, like the living for it type of love. Some like it hot, some like it iced with a splash of creamer, and some like it with a cold foam topping. Many of us stop into coffee shops on our way to work more often than we'd like to admit. But now, thanks to International Delight Cold Foam Creamer, you can make cold foam coffee at home, or in my team's case, in the office, and it's a game changer. I was just chatting with a teammate of mine about our love for the occasional sweet treat coffee. Sometimes, it's just the thing you need as a pick-me-up on a busy day and we just stocked our office fridge with international delight cold foam creamer and it never misses the team's favorite flavor so far is the caramel macchiato you just shake the canister and spray it into your coffee and voila you've got an incredible cold foam coffee no frothing fancy machines or mess required international delight cold foam creamer foams and creams your coffee from top to bottom the best part it works on both hot and iced coffee it comes in three foaming delicious flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato. So you can switch things up depending on your mood. Look for your favorite flavor next time you're at your grocery store and be prepared to say goodbye to your barista. International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. It's foaming delicious. A lot of people are afraid to, to go back into the stories of their past. Yeah. They're afraid to face the pain, the traumas, that they're aware of and also to face the things they're unaware of, mm -hmm. the generational traumas. Yeah, yeah. Why is it so hard for us to face these past traumas and pains? Uh, it's, it's hard for a number of reasons. I mean, I think that a lot of what makes it hard is that people start feeling really unsafe in their own bodies whenever they're talking about trauma. Mm. Trauma is like that that area of mental health that we're still a little bit tentative about touching in conversation. And, and so it makes it so that people, you know, don't, don't necessarily want to get into the nitty gritty of not only trauma and understanding what trauma is, but also like how trauma impacts their own lives, how trauma transcends down their lineage, how trauma has been a part of their lives. Because people will exist in trauma, but then have a tough time even acknowledging that it even is a thing. So what would you say is the percentage of people that exist in trauma in U.S.? Oh, goodness. Well, I mean, I, I, I saw not too long ago like this uh, 
statistic, I think it can be variable because we're, we got to acknowledge the fact that some people won't actually acknowledge that they're in trauma uh -huh. or know that they're in trauma, right? So, but the statistic says some, somewhere around like 65 or so percent in a lifetime. So we, like someone will, 65% of the population in the U.S. will experience trauma in their lifetime, some element of trauma. Now you layer in a pandemic. All right. How many people actually face their trauma of the 65%, Ugh. you know? Now we're talking like really, really tiny numbers. like Little mountain. Because we have to acknowledge that people are also not in the know that they're existing in trauma. People believe that the way that they're experiencing their emotions is status quo. Even this is the it's, way it's supposed to be. It's the way I am. That's all they know. They've never been yeah. taught otherwise. What they've seen in their families has been a representation of trauma responses. And it's never been anything unlike what they experience in their day to day. So for them to actually even get to the point of saying, I have trauma in my life. Oh, I have something to work on. Or I can like commit to actually working on this. I don't have to exist in trauma mm. is really unheard of for a lot of people. What are the levels of trauma? You know, is it like low level trauma versus a high level trauma? What are the differences? And how can we identify, oh, I think I'm experiencing trauma in my body right now. Well, you know, I think it, it we have to like define trauma, right? Uh -huh. like, so trauma is basically an acute emotional response to a life event that is extremely stressful. Sometimes that life event is threatening to your physical safety. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's threatening to your psychological safety, sometimes both. And so if we can understand, okay, this is what trauma is. It's an emotional response. It's an emotional response to, to an, an event. event that is extremely stressful. So it's like, um, so it's a trigger. Yeah. You know, it's like if someone says something mm -hmm. in your space mm -hmm. and you're like, ooh, that triggered me, I don't like that feeling. I don't like what they said, I don't like what they did or their actions. There's an event happening in the world, your response to it is emotionally charged. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Correct, it's emotionally charged and it's correct. It's also directly connected to your nervous system. So when people say mm -hmm. I'm triggered, what they're saying is some aspect of my experience is in fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Yes. That's what they're saying. And yeah. if I'm in a trauma response, it's your behavioral response to being in fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Uh -huh. so, yeah, you could be reactive or screaming and, mm -hmm. and you'd be like, and avoiding, be, exactly. Like, that's Distance. the flee. The freeze is like mm -hmm. dissociating, disconnecting from your environment and really being in that protective like mental space and then collapsing completely uh -huh. is the fawn response. Or numbing, right? It's numbing. like people do a lot of numbing, which drugs, alcohol, yep. or mm -hmm. addictions of, exactly. of any site. All of it. Um, my, over the last few years, I've really said to myself, I would love to be able to be in the world and look at every event as a neutral event. Mm. As there are things happening, mm -hmm. I may not like it or agree mm -hmm. with it, I'm, or I may like it or agree with it. Kind of looking at it as a neutral event and seeing how can I consciously communicate something about the event to get a result. My goal has been in the last few years is to figure out how can I look at the world as Events are happening, but not letting them affect me mm -hmm. emotionally. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm going to be affected by things, but not letting me hold me back, let's mm -hmm. say, from taking action in my life, from being a good partner in my relationships, from taking care of my health. Mm -hmm. That's been kind of my goal. Mm -hmm. It's a great goal. Because I used to grow up feeling very triggered by so many things. And then I would be you know, stuck in bed or I wouldn't take action on the things I wanted 
events would consume me, events would yeah. hurt me, mm -hmm. events would trigger me, mm -hmm. or people would do those things. Yeah. If someone would cut me off, I would scream in the car, right? I would be so triggered, fight, fight right? Mode. It was mm -hmm. like, I have to beat this person or something. Yeah. And I tell you what, by practicing this, and it's been doing a lot of self-reflecting, a lot of therapy, and a lot of work on myself, by practicing this, the world is neutral mindset. Even though it's not, there's a lot of bad things that are happening. It's allowed me to look at it and say, oh, I don't like this. I don't want this to happen in the world, but I'm not gonna let it consume me and hold me back from living a peaceful, harmonious life. Mm -hmm. And that's been kind of my goal. It's been very challenging but I'm, I have never felt this much peace in my life. I love that for you. And I, and, I, and I wonder, is that something we should be thinking about? Or is that ignorant of me? And I should be triggered more by all the life's events and all the people that are around me and just be so emotionally charged and reactive as opposed to, okay, I see this for what it is. How can I respond from a conscious way? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's a, it, it's a goal that we should all aim to strive for like I think it, it's a goal that I definitely share with you really? like I would yeah absolutely you know the the only thing that the caveat there right is that because we're human because uh -huh. we're designed of course <laughs> a certain way yes. the, <laughs> it's not very feasible ourselves. exactly yeah, yeah. so you know and the thing about that design is mm. that anything that actually looks like a potential threat or even catapults you back into time like actually reminds you of something that has actually already like threatened your existence in some way, your safety in some way, that that's already gonna be something that's gonna revamp that emotional energy. Mm -hmm. And so you're not necessarily gonna be in that neutral place. We're not meant to be neutral. Mm. We're just not designed that way right, as right. humans. It's not being neutral. It's Here's the thing, I tell my girlfriend this, I say, I'm always aware. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. She's like, how did you know this was happening or this was happening? I'm like, because I'm looking and I'm scanning the world for threats, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, it's my natural state to look for threats, mm -hmm. but it's trying to not re react That's from a thing. fearful place. That's it. So I want to be aware and present of like, not just walk around the street and get hit by a car. I want to yeah. look around and be aware and reactive, mm -hmm. but then come back to a centered place of peace yeah. is the goal. Yeah. And I think a lot of what you're talking about is having, there is like this space between when your nervous system says there's a potential. Yes. Right? And then there's this space where there's mindful thought and conscious uh -huh. thought and then conscious action that happens thereafter. And I think that's what you're talking about. That's what I'm trying yeah. to create. That's what I'm looking to create. That's very, very doable, very feasible for anybody, even individuals that have undergone trauma and especially mm -hmm. generational trauma. But the psych it's more of like the psychological threats and the nervous system threats is what I'm hearing you mm -hmm. say is what are challenging for a lot of people. It's like something happens, an event happens and it triggers our memory, right? Yeah. A memory from a traumatic experience. Yes. But what if we remove the memory? What would happen then? Would we be reactive and triggered? Well, you know, I think you're talking a bit about how we can reconfigure even like our cellular memory yes. to, to, to actually respond less to what could have been triggering in the past. Because you, you know, we have so many different variations of memory. We have olfactory memory, like the scent memory, right? There's so, there's so many ways in which our senses can produce triggers for us. Isn't that, that interesting? Yeah. Right. So we have the sound memory, sound memory. Music. Yeah. There's a familiar taste and just like brings you right back into childhood. And you're like, yeah. wait, something, something's up. Something's like bringing me back into a place that isn't now. 
right? Mm. And so we have to talk about the ways in which, you know, you reprogram your mind, you reprogram your nervous system to be steady, to feel like it's in a safe place, even if a memory gets re-triggered by way of any of your senses. I think a lot of people can relate to this with um, friends, family members, relatives, you know, where like something from childhood triggers them as an adult and they haven't figured out how to either heal the memory of the, the trauma or just be in the environment with people that triggered them so much as a, a kid growing up. Mm -hmm. If someone has a relative or someone that's in their environment, in their space, that triggers them so much, how do they not kick them out of their life completely, but also create a boundary so that it doesn't mm -hmm. affect them? Mm -hmm. With the words they say, with the actions they have, things like that. There are different variations of how people do that. And that's why I like, you know, why I love this work so much, because you can be really creative with a client as to what will work for you, mm. right? Where can you create some elements of a boundary that can also keep you at close proximity to the people that you love because you still want to be Yeah, in you want to be in their life. Right. And, and you want to be able to still be unified in some way, but still preserve your energy, right? In, in the psychological world, especially in like dialectical behavioral therapy, we call environments that still embody some of the trauma responses or the chaos a strong environment. So you're going back into that strong environment that's like mm. immobile, it's inflexible. The trauma responses are embedded in that environment and have been for generations. People just operate that way at home, right? So the, the biggest thing that we have to do is not only to train the nervous system to be able to be well in the strong environment, right? But to train people to hold on to that because eventually, even if it's microscopic changes, the environment will shift because you'll be showing really? up differently in your environment. So the environment is going to shift accordingly. What are a few strategies someone can do to, I guess, work with their nervous system around people that trigger them? Oh, you're talking my jam. This is, my <laughs> <laughs> this is stuff I love. You know what so, I mean? How can they shift so that yeah. the environment shifts? And I'll, I'll preface it this way. This has to be a daily practice. Yeah. Like people have to get into the practice of nervous system regulation on a daily basis, especially if they come from a lineage of trauma or if they've experienced trauma just in their lifetime. And the three practices that I, I like the most, I like them because they're accessible, because you can do them anywhere, uh -huh. and because they actually work. Um, and the, the three are like breath work. Mm. I think people like... The, the saying, take a breath, has been so widely popularized. Look at you taking a breath. I love that. I do it all the yeah, time. Yeah, me too. too. That's one of my favorite things that I've been able to acquire as, as, you know, I've kind of like undergone my own journey that now by default I do that too. And Just I think throughout it's the so day. awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, because it's almost like your body is taking care of you now, right? Like you're, you've done all the work to like, I got to take care of this body. I got to take care of this mind. And now it's by default. And that, that is building mastery. It's like mm -hmm. you have mastery over the task of actually doing deep breaths whenever your body needs it. As opposed to holding it automatic. in all the time. Yeah, or short breaths or holding it in. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Okay, yeah. so number so one breath is work. breath work. Yeah, and breath work that is at least for five minutes. So the nervous system needs at least that amount of time to actually catch up. Mm -hmm. And it's important to, to value breath work even though, you know, we have so many like ways in which it's been, I think, overdone or people just like discount it because it's, you know, it's been talked about so much. But the thing about breath work is that eventually your nervous system can't operate in the stress response and in the breathing response simultaneously. It has to relax. 
it's gonna have to. Yeah. And so you keep it going until you feel that. And for trauma survivors, it you know it, it can take a little bit longer because there's a lot of undoing, a lot of decades, right? And so the breath work is gonna be key. Mm -hmm. One of my other favorites are like humming. Humming also so is powerful. Humming's Breathing so and humming at the same time. This is what they teach in yoga and you know yeah. deep meditation practices. Yeah. A lot of chanting practices utilize mm -hmm. them. Yeah, and the Om sound, right? Like really bringing that out actually triggers the parasympathetic nervous response, which is the the part of the nervous system that um, initiates. It's also called like a ventral vagal response, which initiates a relaxation process, a rest and recovery for the nervous system. So it's really essential for people to actually do humming. And, and the same rule applies. Do it until you feel like, okay, mm -hmm. I'm in a steady place. One client one time like did so much of the humming after I prescribed it that they're, they're a horse. But you know, like I think, you know, and that also is a testament to commitment, right? Like if you can commit to it, like do it and do what works. And the third one that I like is rocking. Rocking? Just rocking Back and body. forth? Yeah, because if you think about the, the, the Gosh, rhythmic so element of rocking, it, it actually like, is almost like, you know. Um, soothing, yeah. It's soothing. It's like, like a baby in the womb, mm -hmm. you know, you're like rocking back and forth. So and like funny. This warmth. I, I naturally rock, you know, pretty much my whole life, especially when I'm standing. I've never been good at sitting still mm -hmm. or standing still. Mm -hmm. So I naturally just kind of like rock back and forth when I'm standing because <laughs> otherwise I'll just, it's hard for me to just stand still. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so breathing at least five minutes a day, but I think just trying to remind yourself throughout the day to take deep, slow, intentional yeah. breaths, mm -hmm. humming, and then rocking your body. This could be sitting down, it could be standing, it could be yeah. laying down as well. Yeah, and I think for the busy minds and busy, I'm, I'm a busy mind, so I think uh, it works for me to do all three. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I just integrate it. I do my own thing, you know? Uh -huh. I rock, I breathe, I hum. And it's, you know, it, it allows me to really integrate the practices to get the full effect and to also, you know, just like my, my mind is so preoccupied also with making sure that I'm on the technique that it adds a bit of mindfulness mm -hmm. in there because I'm very present-centered. Yeah, that's good. What's the difference between the traumas that happen to us and the generational trauma that happened to our ancestors. Mm -hmm. So the the major difference is placed in biology. So there's a genetic component to intergenerational trauma, and so intergenerational trauma has this um, way in which uh, there is a genetic transmission that happens from parent to child. Really. And so it creates a predisposition to vulnerability to stress. Give me an example. What's a common example you see in your practice that is a generational story? Well, I mean, you know, um, there are people that will come in and say, you know, ever since I was a child, it was like difficult to soothe. And I was, you know, I, I, I had like this hyperactivity. There's a lot of trauma survivors that also like believe that their symptoms are coincide with ADHD mm -hmm. because there's a lot of overlap in, in the experience in the, in the symptomatology. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of that. There's like people that, you know, reflect back to their childhood and they say like, I've, I've always had like this experience that felt like I was always anxious. When we dig into the layers and we dig deep, we start noticing, okay, especially because I do a lot of like family tree work and like really going down the, the yeah. lineage to know like, well, what are some of the trauma responses or what are some of the responses around also like inflammatory responses like depression or anxiety um, or other kind of like mental illness, you know, kind of um, experiences that were held in the family. 
And when we start going down the family line and we start exploring not only their childhood and how they responded in their childhood, what their attachment patterns were in their childhood, but also how perhaps like their mother had an inner child wound mm -hmm. and their mother's mother had an inner child wound. And they never wound. healed it. Never healed it, expressed it as a trauma response, mm -hmm. yelled and screamed in the home, you know, had like mm -hmm. emotional outbursts. What did that do? That actually created a disruption in the attachment that you could have had like in your childhood. It created an insecure attachment. You then went out into the world and experienced bullying, a pandemic, like mm -hmm. all kinds of things. And then that trauma, that trauma, um, you know, propensity or, or, or vulnerability got triggered out. And yes. so now you are a, a continuing the cycle of intergenerational trauma mm -hmm. because it was modeled to you genetically, it was passed down and then, you know. My career not only requires me to travel, but also gives me the freedom to. Traveling has brought me so many positive experiences and memories. Like that time I spent the holidays at an Airbnb in Big Bear with some of my extended family, and it was the perfect way to come together and connect with my family that I don't see that often. If you have a similar setup that allows you to travel often, have you ever thought about your empty home while you're gone? More specifically, how you can make some extra money by keeping your home occupied while you're out of town. I'm a big advocate for setting up a side hustle to give you an extra stream of income and Airbnb hosting is an easy place to start. Many people host on Airbnb, including some friends of mine, but there are some people out there who've never even realized their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you've got yourself an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now, is it is it genetic or is it, let's say the mother uh, breaks a cycle before she heals her trauma, the generational trauma, before she has her child? She can. And, and, and she creates an environment of peace, mm. you know? Yeah. Is it the environment or is it the biology, the genetic code that is passed down? Because it's like these environments are kind of passed down. Mm -hmm. You witness your parents doing it, you just follow the pattern and you follow the, the environment pattern. Yeah. Is that genetic? Is that environment? What is both or? It's both. It's like, you know, for as long as psychology has existed, we've had like theories on, on nature nurture. Mm -hmm. Darwinism also kind of mm -hmm. just started that, right? Like way back when. So nature being like the biological aspects of our experiences and then nurture being like the social aspects of our experiences. And intergenerational trauma is really the only trauma that is situated at the intersection of both. So we have the nature side. Yeah, so you know, on the nature side, the genetic expression, like we're, we're getting a lot of information from like the field of epigenetics, which helps us understand how behavior like impacts genes. And so basically what happens is that, let's say a mother, a mother has stress and depression in her life. Let's say that this mother is actually pregnant at five months gestation. So she's pregnant, she has a baby in utero. Mm -hmm. And because she's at five months gestation, that baby also has all the precursors sex cells that they're gonna have for their lifetime, regardless of the, mm. whether it's male or female, they already have those. So the mother, she experienced chronic trauma her entire life. And so because that became the status quo, her genes re-expressed. So her genes sure. said, okay, this is the way that things are. We are a stressed body. And so, because her genes mm -hmm. are now saying we are predisposed to stress, that's being handed down to the baby in utero, actually at conception. Wow. So the baby is conceived into genes 
that are predisposed to stress. Mm. And because she is already still stressed while she's having this baby, all those stress hormones, namely cortisol, those are being passed down to the baby in utero. And what's happening to the precursor cells? Those are also ingesting a lot of that mm-hmm. stress environment. So you have three generations in one body. Wow. Genetically being passed down the, the stress vulnerability, but also the social piece, the mother's stress, you know, like she has all her things going on. She's predisposed to trauma. She's got all these things going while she's, right. you know, still pregnant. Her environment is still stressful, yeah. Yeah. And so everybody wow. in that lineage of three generations in one body is experiencing stress. Is it just three generations or is it like every generation that's had it? Well, you know, like, I mean, I, I'm, I think it's, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg kind of mm-hmm. phenomenon when it comes to intergenerational trauma, right? Like, it's like, where did, who, who started it, right? But I think I illustrate that because it's, I think, a little bit easier to see like, oh, well, maybe it started with mom. Maybe she was, you know, the person that... Maybe she had an extreme trauma and there was a reaction yeah, response. Yeah, exactly, right? And so now we at least get to see where the genetic line started yeah. from, the, from the trauma perspective. When you think about it that way, you're like, man, I'm carrying the weight of, you know, multiple generations of trauma in my genes, mm-hmm. like physical weight, actual weight. Yeah. That could, that could get a little dark and heavy it if can. you really put the emphasis on that. So how do we actually break that cycle once and for all where none of that trauma stays with us and we don't pass it down to our kids? It definitely has to be a very like whole system overhaul for most folks. Uh-huh. Like it has to be, you know, an, an integration of holistic practices in our day-to-day daily. lives. Every single day. Like a daily practice. Every day. Can't waver on it because... We got to think about what we're undoing. We're not just undoing the decades of trauma that, that you experience. Yeah, you're doing. You're undoing all the. You really need to have a rebirth. Yeah. It's like a spiritual, psychological, emotional, nervous system rebirth, in Absolutely. my opinion. I feel like I've had a couple of them in the last decade. Mm-hmm. Um, Ten years ago, kind of opening up about my sexual abuse trauma, mm-hmm. and then in the last few years, just dealing with all relationships in general, like all intimate relationships that I've had. I've never really faced them until a couple of years ago. And I feel like I had to re, I had to emotionally, spiritually die in a sense, yeah. psychologically, I guess. Absolutely, yeah. Allow it to burn yeah. and, then, and then build from the ashes kind of psychologically. Oh, yeah. uh, and it's a process. I'm not saying I finished it or whatever, but it's like a constant journey of going back to the different stages of childhood, mm-hmm. healing each stage and integrating that age with my current self. So there's full integration and healing mm-hmm. of every different memory from my life that was a traumatic response. Yeah. yeah, And it's been a beautiful journey that has allowed me to have peace and harmony on the inside, which I never had that until... Really, 10 years ago, I didn't start feeling it, but until a couple years ago when I started feeling more and more peace on the inside. And it allows me to, again, see the world differently. I'm not saying I'm like not triggered by things, but it allows me to see it and say, okay, this sucks. How can I consciously communicate what I want to change? Mm-hmm. Not from a reactive, overwhelmed, stressed, traumatic yeah. state, which I feel like exactly. you can't really get much done from yeah. that state. No, it, I mean, you can, you know, you can push things down and numb and, uh-huh. and, and still operate, you know, um, fairly well, but you can all survive. Of that, 
all of that will come back because you're in survival mode yeah. still because numbing is still survival yeah. mode. But you you're know? not thriving. So, you're not creating an abundant life for yourself when you're in a traumatic response, are mm -hmm. we? No, not at all. I mean, I think, you know, abundance comes from being able to get into the depths of your soul, right? Mm. So I love that you're talking about the more like psycho-spiritual angle because that is definitely, I, I operate from a holistic angle. And so like a lot of the work that I do is very mind, body, spirit. And the spiritual peace is really essential because it's not, you know, just your your connection to higher power. It's really just also your connection to yourself. When mm -hmm. you're like really disconnected from your true authentic self, you're not living abundantly. Yes. And if we want generational abundance, then we have to get into the depths of everything that's there, into the the, the mud, if you may. Yeah, and I think if you're if you're triggered or have a nervous system response to a, a lot of things, you're constantly in their survival mode, right? Yeah. And it's hard to create an abundant, it's hard to dream from a place of survival. It's hard to create something beautiful from that place. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, even like, you know, from a biological perspective, like when we're in a nervous system response and that's, you know, survival mode, you're in a chronic nervous system yes. overhaul, right? So. Our nervous system is designed to actually make it so that whenever we are in a fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, any non-essential functions, any non-essential like organ functions, bodily functions, our brain even, like the cortical region mm -hmm. of our brain, all of that is mildly shut down. So if you're th talking about like alchemizing and creativity and like all these things, those things require a lot of cortical, you know, structure so like <laughs> manifestation of like you know all the things that you want like really requires for you to get into your creative mind and if your cortical brain is not fully functioning in the ways that it because it's in survival mode then you're not really going to get into that actualization it's so interesting because i was i was in a relationship once where it's a couple of years of stress right i was it's all my responsibility i should have gotten out but i stayed in and i wanted to make it work and all these different things and I remember for like a year before the relationship, I was like getting ready to create a book, write a book. Mm -hmm. And I was excited about it. And then in the relationship, I had no energy to create because a lot of it was survival mm -hmm. in this relationship. It was kind of like, come back home. Is she going to yell at me? And, you know, what are we managing today? What's yeah. the stress level? All these different things. Mm -hmm. And I kept wanting to try to create this book, but I had zero energy or creative thinking to make it happen. And I kept being like shaming myself. It's like, why do I not have the energy for this? But I was putting all my energy in kind of survival mode and right. just make this one environment work mm -hmm. out. The moment things ended, it's like I finished the book in a few months. Yeah. You know, it's like I had all this energy and creativity because yeah. I wasn't in that survival mode state. I want to ask you a question about, you mentioned mental health for a, a moment. What are the main, I guess, I don't know all the terminology perfectly. So what are the main mental health challenges that people face today? Is it depression? Is it anxiety? Is it ADHD? What are the what are the terminologies of mental health that are prominent today? Those are primary ones, but actually depression is on a worldwide scale, uh -huh. happens to be one of the leading causes of disability, one of the leading causes of uh, just global unwellness. Um, it's very debilitating kind of condition because it's not just a mental health condition, it's also like a bodily condition. Physically, It's yeah. an inflammatory condition. Mm -hmm. So we, we know a lot of, you know, I think some of the initial studies that came out that coincided with, you know, psychotropics, like, um, you know, some of the medications, you know, from like the 80s, 90s and, and, and all of that, like helped us to understand some of the ways in which 
um, the brain, you know, it, it operates a certain way to facilitate depression, but we weren't necessarily talking about other studies that were happening, which were talking about more of the immunology that's implicated, mm -hmm. like all those, the, anything that's inflammatory that's implicated in depression as well, diet that's implicated in depression as well. A lot of- So many more, factors, yeah. Yeah, so many things. So depression is like a big one, but whenever someone comes to me with depression, I always like to look at the, the full picture, right? So I look at of all those- whole life. Everything, everything you know, yeah. I look at all those pieces, and depression is one of those mental health conditions that has there are a number of them, but this one has like um, a, a way to identify it and classify it as either single episode or multiple episode. When a person is in a single episode, I usually look for an environmental trigger. What happened? What happened, right? But when there is a multiple episode, I wonder a lot more. What Meaning happened what? to you? A relationship, food, yeah. environment, loss of a loss job, of job. Yeah. yeah, divorce, the small t traumas, if you may, uh -huh. like some of the things yeah. that are like your day to day. Everyday traumas, but nothing that really compromises your safety in any way. Right, right. But whenever we're talking about multiple episode depression, I, I get very curious about a person's history, their family history, mm -hmm. what happened to them, what happened within their family, and I really start digging. Because when, when you're talking about lifelong depression, you've been depressed your entire life, we have to really start wondering, is trauma implicated in your history in some way? And is that what's keeping the undercurrent of depression running? Mm -hmm. so depression is the main one you hear about. Anxiety. Uh, There's psychosis, which we don't talk a lot about. Psychosis mm. is, you know, a, a, a extreme version of dissociation. There's some genetic loading there too, mm -hmm. especially with schizophrenia. Um, there's genetic loading to, to some extent with depression and anxiety. There's trauma. Trauma is a whole separate category. You have complex trauma, you have developmental trauma, you have yeah. reactive attachment disorder, which is mostly for children. Uh -huh. and, and it's like the very first sign of like, uh-oh, they're acting a certain way that is different. Maybe something happened. Uh, right? Something happened, yeah. That's, yeah. So I'm, I'm curious. These, I just want to understand the terminology of these things. So in the term of a mental health illness, would depression, ADHD, psychosis, would these be considered illnesses? What would these be, the terminology? These, I would say illnesses because... Conditions, what is it? I know there's, you know, there, there are a number of us, especially the holistic um, psychologists of the world, like we, we look at um, illness and, and disorder, as, you know, just, we, we like to not look at it as that. Um, in some ways, we like to really kind of like look at the global picture but if we're talking about the diagnostic of an individual, yeah, yeah, and and really the manual that we, yes, as psychologists and psychiatrists have to basically abide by when we're creating diagnostic codes, uh -huh. then you know these are considered mental disorders. Mental disorders, health, yeah. okay. Disorders or illnesses, it's actually the same. Now, is it this disorder? Is it a symptom? I hate that word. I know. <laughs> is this? Uh, but that's what it's called. This disorder, this challenge. Yeah, yeah. Is it a symptom mm -hmm. or is it a disorder? Is it a symptom of trauma or unresolved healing that causes this disorder? And if we heal the trauma, will we be able to eliminate these symptoms or these disorders? I think we'll be able to get rid of a lot of stuff, mm -hmm. a lot of it. Some of it, as I mentioned, because there is that genetic loading, mm -hmm. and we got to think of the genetics that we talked about already, yes. right? Like, we're talking about lineages of genetic loadings. 
So, you know, if we start doing the work now, maybe we'll see a lot less of these disorders happening within our families and our communities. So there is a lot that we can do to actually rectify the, the abundance of mental illness that's out there, right? Yeah. Um, I believe that there is a lot of the mental illness that exists in the world that has an undercurrent of trauma, and we just haven't talked about that undercurrent or that possibility as much. But I don't know if we'll be able to absolve ourselves of 100% of the mental illness in the world, but I think that we can do a really good job in this generation to break cycles. But could an individual eliminate these mental health issues on an individual level if they are willing to do the deep healing work. Because essentially, because I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, are these, these are like symptoms of trauma. You didn't grow up depressed. Certain things happened, an event happened, an environment continued mm -hmm. to foster the feelings of depression, yeah. the state of depression. Mm -hmm. And if we can heal the memory, the trauma, the event, and, and reconnect to our purest self, mm -hmm. our whole human self, wouldn't those things start to go away? That's precisely the goal. So, you know, where we started off with psychology and psychiatry is we started off with symptom management. A lot of psychiatry, you know, we're still kind of there a little bit. Which is like, here's the drug to manage the symptoms. Band-aid. But that's not healing. Yeah. That's not resolving. That's just managing it. Precisely. But that doesn't, it doesn't do anything to bring back to wholeness. Yes. And integrate the person. Integrating the healing, right? Exactly. And that's the goal. That's the goal for me. That's the goal in my practice. I want full integration of that person. I want them to see, really see their authentic self. Some people have, have never even had an opportunity to see like who they could be at their true core self because it's been masked by so much of the trauma and the symptomatology that's associated with the trauma, like the depression, anxiety, mm -hmm. and all those things. Yeah. So you believe that people can heal these mental health challenges as well if they integrate fully? Many of them, Many especially of them, yeah. the ones that, you know, because I think we have like bipolar disorder and we have, you know, schizophrenia that have a, a, a different mechanism yes. to them. But many of them, absolutely. But many of the ones that a lot of people are facing, depression, AD, the big ones, ADD, ADHD, Depression you know. especially, yeah. Right. Yeah. How important is finding a meaningful purpose in life support you in overcoming feeling depressed or depression? It's like so critical. It's really? one, yeah, 100%. I mean, wow. like when we're talking about what happens after trauma, meaning making is at the center. It's like one of the biggest things because mm. you, have, you have to see your life having some sort of value and that there's meaning associated with your life and with everything that's within your life in order to actually like even feel motivated to do the, the heavy lifting that is the healing work to get yourself to the other side. Mm -hmm. So you have to have meaning in that journey. Meaning making, it's alchemized in that journey, it's created in that journey, right? But I, I think at the very least, you have to have hope that meaning can meaning making can be possible. Mm -hmm. Because what it sounds like to me is a lot of people attach meaning in a more negative, harmful state to events, to words, to actions that happen around them. Mm -hmm. And therefore that meaning causes more depression, ADHD, or you know, yeah. negative thoughts, all these different things that hurt us. Yeah. 
But if we created a different meaning around the event or the words or the event, uh, the breakup or the loss of career, created a new meaning around it and had a different intention, a different purpose moving forward, we wouldn't have those mental challenges as much. Yeah, I mean, I think people, you know, just haven't been trained to ask themselves the, the right questions around meaning making, right? And so, what's the right questions? Well, the right questions are, you know, well, someone you know, like someone experiences a traumatic event, or big T or little T. Mm -hmm. What questions should we ask? Yeah, we should be asking, you know, um, so questions around. Well, let's talk about what was learned in that circumstance. That's a really hard question to ask because mm. sometimes people will be like, you really. You think that that needed to happen? No, it didn't need to happen. It did happen. It happened. You can't change it. You can't. That's, that's in your history now. Oh. But what can we take from that experience? And it doesn't even need to be the traumatic event itself, but your response, your reaction. What can we take from that to learn how to now create a healing protocol for you? And it's, it's about you know, being able to ask questions that get people thinking outside of the box because what happens when you're in a state of trauma is that you're you're frozen in many ways. Your thoughts are frozen. You, you start thinking a lot of the same things, right? Like it's a, a lot of protective functions. Your, your feelings are frozen in time. Like people like constantly feel worry, anxiety, like a lot of things that are, you know, just them being in a protective state. Mm -hmm. And so if we can start asking questions to free some of that up, that's, that's going to be like really key. But I, I like that question, even though, you know, I, I think it can veer us in different directions, but I'm open to that whenever it comes to work with a client, right? Because wherever we go, I'm with them. I'm going with you and we're following that path. If someone stays committed to their story of, of meaning that it, it was this horrible event and it ruined my life, mm -hmm. the divorce, the job loss, the injury, whatever it might be, what happens if they hold on to the meaning in a negative way as opposed to that was a traumatic event i don't wish it upon anyone but here's what i learned from it here's what i gained from it here's what i'm going to do with it in a positive way what happens to those well the way that i interpret that is that that person is one still in a state of fear mm. they're not ready to to really get curious about what other definitions meaning can have in their life. They're just really stuck on the one definition, mm -hmm. that it tarnished their lives, that they, you know, it got in the way, and they're just stuck there, right? And so if that's the case, then my role as a clinician or their role as a person that wants to get out of it, hopefully, is, is to work on the fear. You gotta work on where is fear trapped? How is the nervous system operating around fear, right? Like, where can we free them up in a bodily sense? Because the nervous system requires a lot of that body-based yeah. work. And so we have to, like, really get curious about that and, like, go in that direction versus, mm -hmm. you know, the, 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 the questions are very mind-focused, right? But we need the body-based practices in order to create safety in the body. Mm -hmm. To so release it, also, right? To release the fear, the pain, the trauma, and reconnect to the safety of your body. Is that right? Exactly. And so that when a person can feel that there is safety in their body, they can feel that they can actually um, go into the depths of their minds in a way that doesn't feel scary and existential. Right. Speaking of fear, I saw somewhere recently, I don't know if this is true, but I saw somewhere recently that we were, that human beings are born with three fears the fear of loud noises, the fear of falling, and the fear of abandonment. Mm. I don't know if that's true, but if it is, 
we tend to build, uh, add more fears as time go on. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true, if those are the only three or we don't mm-hmm. have fears at all, but, but it seems like we gather, we collect more fears mm-hmm. through childhood and adulthood. Why do you think we gather so many fears and collect them? Well, I think you're talking about like primary fears, right? Uh-huh. Like those feel like primary fears yeah. to me. Like they're like what you start off with. As a baby, yeah. you're going to have that startle response. As yeah. a baby, you're going to need to feel deeply connected and attuned to a caregiver. Otherwise you don't live. Yeah. Basically, right? And so like it's basically a fear of losing life or a fear of losing safety. So it makes a lot of sense. But the accumulation of it also makes sense because we operate in mental representations, in Mm -hmm. categories, basically. Mm. So we have specific categories in our minds that that are primarily created in our childhood, and then everything else that happens in life, we put in the different categories in the buckets of our minds, and they just start accumulating and growing. So if you have a big fear bucket, then you're going to have a lot of fears that are going to, you know, like come into your life and stay there because your fear bucket is just, you know, so enormous. What's the biggest fear you've had to overcome? Mm. Um, the thing that held you back the most? I think for me, you know, I grew up in, um, in poverty. Mm. And that, for me, um, the thing about growing up in poverty is that it's not only the fear of do we have enough, um, it's also that that mental expression, that that narrative stays with you throughout life. Mm. And it creates that, and now we call it like deficit mentality, right? Or other kinds of things. Scarcity. But it's like scarcity mindset, yeah. all those things, right? Like, and so not having enough, um, not being able to survive in that way is definitely like been an enormous fear for me for like throughout life because that's, I was born into such poverty that I remember like, um, with my grandmother, like she carried like a, a bucket of water to bring to her home, right? Mm. Like from like this tiny little spring, you know, like not wow. having outdoor plumbing, like Where indoor plumbing in the Dominican Republic. Wow. Yeah. You grew up there? I, I was there until I was five. Yeah. Yeah. And then I came to the U.S. Sure. And so like, you know, I mean, like you, you see that growing up, uh-huh. right? Like, and there's like that much scarcity that to ever go back to anything like that feels yes. like... It can happen at any time. It's like you don't want to go back there. I remember when I was 20, I don't know, 23, 24, 25, that range, I was living on my sister's couch. I had no money. And mm-hmm. I was in student loan debt at the time, living off three credit cards. Mm-hmm. So in 2008, when kind of the economy crashed that time. And I remember thinking, like, this is not fun. <laughs> you know, this is not mm-hmm. fun, like, eating my sister's leftovers and, like, not being able to pay for rent and just figuring out how we're gonna get food for the next couple of days, right? Like, where's the money gonna come from? Yeah. Now, I had a roof over my head, but it, I wasn't providing for myself, right? Yeah. It was like my sister was, even though I'm a 20-something-year-old man, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, after I started to make money for, I don't know, probably five years, I remember thinking, I just never wanna go back there. Yeah. So it was still kind of in a survival mode, even though I had money, like I had enough money in the bank for six months and then a year to like live off of, still kind of operating off of scarcity and not enough and I need more to feel safe and yeah. secure yeah. and I never want to go back to that place mm-hmm. and it's it's challenging to break that it physically the, the nervous system exactly. and also mentally psychologically and just 
knowing you'll be able to generate and create enough. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a challenge to break through. It is, and, and you know, like the, the actual logistical challenge, I, I mean, that was there for sure, right? Like I had, I had to do a lot to be able to break away from that, right? And, and to, to help my family like mm -hmm. navigate out of, you know, that, that position of working class poverty, right? Like, but um, the, the, the psychological piece, that takes serious work. Yeah. That takes serious work, right? Because, you, you, you know, like, it's about money management. Mm -hmm. It's about, you know, like, um, things that I may desire and want to purchase, but that's always in the back of my mind, you uh, know? And so, yeah, like, yeah. it's, like, really kind of fighting you gotta, that. You got to learn a whole new set of skills. Yeah. I learned with yeah. money, it was, like, I'm still educating myself today. You know, I'm still learning and teaching myself different things about money, from saving to investing to mm -hmm. tax strategies to managing it, all these different things. I don't think you ever stop learning. Yeah. And because I'm learning, I feel more and more confident with mm -hmm. it. I feel mm -hmm. more and more yeah. okay with it. Yeah. But if I don't understand it, how am I going to feel okay with it? Yeah. And most yeah. of us were never taught this as kids. Mm -hmm. You know, we're never taught this. We're not taught this in schools how to manage money. So, and, right. I, and if we grew up in lower income houses, we probably weren't taught how to manage it either. Yeah. So it's like you really got to self-educate yourself on so many areas of life if you didn't learn. Yeah. Money healing, relationships, how to deal with failure, all these things. That's why Absolutely. I created the School of Greatness because yeah. it's everything I wish I had when I was yeah. growing up. Yeah. There are some people that I've met who can't remember their childhood. Mm -hmm. Super common. I, I met this one girl, I don't know, about 10 years ago. She's like, I don't remember anything before 17. I go, what? It just didn't make sense to me, right? I know I have, you know, I don't remember every year of my childhood and I don't remember everything but if I can go back to that place or I see a photo I'm like yeah I remember this mm -hmm. but when I met someone for the first time and said they didn't remember before 17 I go that's interesting I later realized there was a lot of trauma yeah so if someone isn't able to re recall childhood memories in general and they just have it blocked is that because of trauma or is that something else um, so trauma can be very much implicated. I mean, like, you know, humans were so variable that, you know, there can be other things. But when it comes to this type of experience that you're talking mm -hmm. about and people saying, I don't remember a whole chunk of my life, I don't remember my childhood, it is incredibly common for trauma survivors, especially individuals that are, um, that have undergone either complex trauma or chronic trauma or just have been in that trauma response, in that survival mode for almost a lifetime. And I mean, there is a, a bit of a biological, psychological explanation for that. And I, I think we got to like really get into memory and how it operates. Like what is memory, mm -hmm. right? So we have short-term memory, we have long-term memory. And short-term memory really operates at this like 30-second interval. And anything that isn't encoded into long-term memory dissolves with short-term memory. You no longer remember it. Now, when we're talking about the nervous system, remember we have like a dissociative process. That dissociative process makes it so that also like you're in, you're operating only with the essential functions that you need, which means that that memory encoding, that's compromised too. So when you're in constant survival mode and your memory isn't shifting into long-term memory, you're not encoding that, you can't later retrieve it. So retrieval isn't gonna be possible later in life. You're not gonna remember what happened when you were eight years old mm -hmm. because it was a compromising of your, yeah. of your memory process. Is there a way to remember things if you blocked it for so long or is it kind of you've lost these memories? 
I mean, uh, you know, especially in childhood, like some of it we're supposed to lose, right? Like pruning away. It's, it's, we're not designed to remember everything. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, if, if memories weren't encoded into long-term memory, it's going to be hard to remember them because they're just not there. Uh-huh. However, I mean, I think we have to, you know, further break down memory because we have implicit and explicit memory. And What's the difference? So explicit memory is more of those like, you know, you remember, you know, that childhood um, girlfriend that you had, right? Like, and like you remember moments of that. Like it's, you remember what you had for breakfast. It's like very concrete, conscious details of your memory. Implicit memory is more like sensory memory. So the body still mm, remembers. The smell, the sight, the experience, the music. You, the touch, you like yeah. we remember in, in, wow. in a more implicit way, right? And so like people, when they're talking about not remembering, they're talking about explicit memory, not implicit. Because implicit, they're remembering a lot because they're living in that body mm-hmm. that's constantly reminding them through triggers that there's a memory there. So let's say someone is got out all the things, you know, depression, all the stress, nervous system is broken down, they're just in a low state, all these things. Mm -hmm. Everything triggers them, right? If you wipe their memory off Mm -hmm. and they woke up without having the memory, cellular memory or the mental memory of the trauma, the little T, big T, the chronic trauma, all these different things, what would happen? It's a hypothetical scenario. But if you were able to eliminate these memories, Mm -hmm. wouldn't you essentially be more positive or have like a more, a better outlook on life? I mean, I think that you, you know, could have more of like what we talked about earlier, that neutrality Uh for sure, right? You know, I think observing it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, like because everything will be new, right? And Mm -hmm. so you won't have something that, that actually is attached to emotion. Like an event is not attached to emotion. And, you know, a scent is not attached mm-hmm. to emotion. So you won't have the trigger response. You'll just be looking at something with, with a new set of eyes. So, yes. Yeah. I just feel like a lot of people doubt themselves. And they have a lot of self-doubt tied to previous events, right? I failed. This person made fun of me. I was laughed at. I was bullied. They broke up with me. I lost the job. Whatever it is, all these events mm-hmm. then attach their self-worth, their identity and they doubt themselves because of a series of events. How do we break that so people can learn to believe in themselves more, even if they had different events happen that didn't go their way? Well, I think it, some of it has to be like a reconfiguration of their self-concept. Like it's, it's very self-oriented, right? Mm-hmm. Because like now we're talking about when someone said something to them about their clothes, how now they like, you know, have this like, um, perception of themselves and how they dress that's negative, you know, or ill-fitted because of what was said. So now it's become a part of the self, right? Um, so a, a lot of the work has to be central to the self. Like, how do we get you to a place where, you know, you're embodying a, a, either a more neutral or more positive sense of self and that your core self isn't, you know, an amalgamation of like all of these negative experiences and how you then translate it and internalize those mm-hmm. into how you see yourself and how you see the world. How do you teach that to someone? What, what's something someone can do if they're listening or watching and they don't believe in themselves or they have a series of events that remind them, see, there I go, and I'm not good enough for this or mm-hmm. I don't deserve this. Mm-hmm. What can they do to start having a different view of self? I like the idea of challenging, of challenging thoughts, right? But the thing about challenging thoughts is that the first step 
is that we have to write down the, the limiting thoughts that have been there. Mm-hmm. Right? We have to write down the emotions that have been associated with those limiting thoughts. And then we have to challenge those thoughts, like actively challenge them. There's so many of us that are walking around this world not having challenged a lot of those initial ideas mm-hmm. that, that we've created around ourselves, regardless of where they came from. They could have been from a parent who told you, you're, you, know, you, you disappoint me, you're not good enough, right? And that manifested into right. a, a mental representation of themselves as not being good enough, right? But we have to look at the root and then challenge the root. And then also like work on the emotional piece. An emotional piece, I, I like the, the work around emotions to be like very body centered because emotions are very situated in the body. And so it's a, it's a mind practice in that we're writing all these things down, but it's also a body practice. It's an integration. It is. Mind Always. and body. You yeah. gotta integrate it. You can't just be analytical around it. If your mm-hmm. body is still reactive, you gotta integrate the two. Yeah, always. What do you think holds you back from your highest self right now? Mm. I definitely have had my fair share of imposter syndrome, of wondering if I, you know, if, if I meet the mark, if um, I've been in spaces where I've, I've been the only person that looks like me. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's definitely made me Maybe wonder. It looks like you, kind, energetic. Uh, you're so kind. Generous. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, great I receive smi- all great of it. Great smile. Thank you. What thank do you, you. mean? <laughs> I mean, you know, like I'm, I'm a black Latina, mm-hmm. right? I'm from the working class. I've entered a lot of elite spaces, mm-hmm. you know, for, for education. You know, I got an Ivy League education for my doctorate and I was very much, you know, not seeing myself mirrored in a lot of these spaces. So it definitely like made me wonder a lot. You were standing out is what you're saying. I was, yeah. Saying, yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, it can be a, a very isolated, the, that experience, you know? And so I think that it, mm. it makes you wonder, like, do I belong here? Is my voice, you know, welcome? Like, that sort of thing. So that definitely has been, you know, uh, it's something that has been a struggle for me. And I think it will forever be, like, something that I know has been there, but I work really, mm. really hard on a daily basis. So if you're coaching around. someone else that's in a similar situation, either they stand out mm-hmm. in their industry. Mm-hmm. They look different. They don't fit in, I yeah. guess, right? They're not mirrored, as you said. Yeah. What would you, how would you coach them if they said they, they feel like, I don't know if I belong or mm-hmm. I feel like an imposter? What would you, how would you coach them to interpret that differently? Yeah, I love that question. I would, you know, uh, I would start with the body always, right? So I would definitely like do some imagery exercises with them to like place them in their mind in that mm-hmm. space and do some relaxation exercises with them around that, because that's always my thing. To get them relaxed first, yeah. to start creating from that space. And exactly, Not like I want safety. State. Yes. Yeah, always safety. However, I do always want to ask, like, who told you you don't belong? Mm-hmm. Because that's a question that we're not explicitly asking ourselves. Like, someone said that in the STEM field, like, women aren't, you know, there isn't open spaces for women, right? Like. Something happened there, right? Who said that women don't belong in STEM? And so that's, you know, like, mm-hmm. I always want to ask that question. Of course, we, we know some of the answer, right? Like, sure, but, sure. but I think societally, you know, like, there's been, like, ways in which we, um, we've created spaces that, that have been for specific populations. And so we, ha- we have to start asking, like, who said that there isn't a space that's open for you? So mm-hmm. I, I think that the, the reason why I ask that question is because I think that 
you know, it opens up the mind to, to really wonder about that. And I think it also offers like a little bit of empowerment to the person that's receiving that question. Like, yeah, right. who told me that I don't belong, you know, and like really stepping into that. And uh-huh. I, I've done that for myself and it's been incredibly helpful. Yeah, it's good. What else would you say after asking that question? How else would you coach that person? I would want them to, um, you know, like really do some like heavy lifting around the emotional piece. I think that that's always going to be um, an, an important aspect of doing work that's imposter syndrome centered, right? Because at the heart of it is fear, right? Mm. And so fear of, there's a fear of a lot of things, but you know, like fear of belonging is a big one, right? Like, do I belong, right? And so if we're talking about fear of belonging, if we're talking about not feeling good enough, a lot of those, you know, areas are, are what we really need to work on. So that's the depth work, right? Mm-hmm. The other stuff is a little bit more superficial. It's yes. like where we start, mm-hmm. but then we got to get into the, the emotion part. Yeah, interesting. What has been the thing you're most proud of that you've overcome? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, definitely getting to this level of education, I think, is something that um, I hold a lot of pride around because I've worked so hard. And I was able to overcome at least like the bigger pieces of imposter syndrome around that. And mm-hmm. also a lot of things like I wasn't taught to operate at this level. Right. And, and so a lot of it was self-taught. At what level? At this level of education. Uh-huh. You know, I'm, I'm definitely a first generation in, in that regard. Um, to, there's a lot of bureaucracies that you got to learn and know, mm-hmm. like when you're operating in like, you know, educational spaces that are higher, higher, higher ed in this way. And so... The fact that I, my own, like, I'm a very intuitive person, so my own intuition helped me to really scan environments mm. in a way that um, helped me to, to learn the environment in a very concrete way and then learn to operate within it, but also just be myself, right? Like, bring myself. I say I bring my sauce because I'm like, I'm going to bring my whole Dominican self into whatever space sure, that sure. I'm, like, a part of. And, you know, everybody, like, who's around me, yeah, you'll have to adjust, right? Like rather than me like adjusting to the environment and like Mm. reconfiguring myself. So that's been something that I've been like really proud of, just like stepping into spaces that, where I felt like before I don't belong and just just proclaiming that I do. Yeah, that's cool. Mm -hmm. Mm, I love this stuff. (laughs) You've got a, your your social media is amazing. You've got a lot of great resources there. You're you're teaching, you're inspiring, you're entertaining, Mm -hmm. uh, and you're connecting people to this work of healing generational trauma. Mm-hmm. You've also working on a book right now. Yeah. You've got a course you're working on that's coming out soon. Yeah. What is this course going to be teaching people about specifically? It's going to really get into the depths of trauma and how we heal from trauma through a number of holistic practices. So my hope is that for individuals that are just hoping to really enhance their knowledge of how how to really integrate practices that are gonna be very helpful in the trauma journey or for healer practitioners that are out there wanting to really enhance their own practice, mm-hmm. coaches, whomever, right, like, and, and be trauma-informed, that this can be a, a really good hub and, and center for them to be able to, to acquire that knowledge. When is this course coming out and how can we, how can we get access to it? Uh, it's coming out in September and access can be through my website, which is drmariobouquet.com. Okay. Yeah. And click on courses, and there I am. There you are. Yeah. yeah. Do you, have, you have a newsletter too? We can subscribe yeah, to. I do. I do, and I actually offer one coping skill each week on my really? newsletter. Yeah. 
Mm, okay. So one coping skill that people can integrate into their week and, and then also, you know, all things my world, basically. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So if we go to drmarielbouquet.com, they can yeah. get the newsletter. They can find out about the course. See you on social media as well. Yeah. What are you, Instagram's your main thing? Instagram yeah. and TikTok. I, TikTok. I like TikTok. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. I, I like to, you know, like lighten the conversation on trauma uh, a little bit because yeah. it is very heavy. It's so heavy. It's dark. It's very dark. And, a lot and of people I, don't want to face it. But that's the thing is that if, if I can open up just mm-hmm. a, a little, you know, a, a small smidgen of like conversation in oh. there, like people start getting really curious about trauma. And I think that, you know, on TikTok, I've been able to do that where I, you know, I infuse a little bit of humor and people are like, okay, it's not that scary to talk about. I can do this. What do you think is going to happen in the world in the next three to five years if people don't face their traumas? I think we're going to see um, a lot of, it's not just going to be on, on the personal end that we'll see the the continuation of these generational cycles of trauma. I think it's going to be that we're going to continue to institute policies. We're going to continue to, you know, just operate in the world in, in a way that is, is driven by a lot of hostility and aggression mm-hmm. that is... A representation of unhealed wounds. Yes. It's interesting. In 2017, I wrote a book called The Mask of Masculinity, mm-hmm. which is about how men can start to heal, can start to yeah. drop the masks that trying to protect them mm-hmm. from the outside world and reveal themselves, be a little more vulnerable, open up, and, and really just show their authentic self from a healed place, not from a hurt place or yeah. defensive place. Because I believe that a lot of the problems that are happening in the world are caused by men who are, you know, wearing a mask, mm-hmm. who are hurt, who are angry, who are traumatized. Mm-hmm. And there hasn't been a safe space specifically for men until I think more recently to start opening up about their traumas. Yeah. I don't think it's been acceptable for yeah. men to talk about these things. And so I'm so I'm so glad you're doing this work. I'm so glad there's a lot of people doing this work because I just feel like people need resources to start the healing journey. Mm-hmm. As my therapist says, it's a journey, it's not a one-time event where you're just, I'm healed and it's all better, you know? It's, yeah, yeah. it's an integration of healing process over Absolutely, time. Absolutely, yeah. But I feel like um, more people like you need to be doing this type of work and, and teaching us how to heal because I think if we can all heal, men specifically, speaking from my point of view, it's like, you know, if men can learn to heal and be more loving and mm-hmm. authentic, then I think it's just gonna be a lot more harmonious environment in the world in general so <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Uh, but I also think that you know a lot of women need to heal too there's a lot Absolutely. of traumas that if women can heal too they can create a safe space for men yeah. to be their authentic selves it's like yeah. working in, in together more as opposed to you know arguing and fighting as much yeah. so yeah that's my intention that's my mission here I love it I love it it creates you know a lot more vulnerability from that place of vulnerability mm-hmm. we can you know bridge curiosity Absolutely. safety there's so much that comes from that place where the work is done vulnerability and courage you know takes root and uh-huh. it, it creates definitely more of that harmony you're speaking to this is the challenge I just wish people could have conversations consciously you know just like maybe I don't agree with a lot of things that you do or other people do or they don't agree with me whatever but to be able to question, and like you said, um, did you say question or just say challenge the thoughts, yeah. that challenge the ideas, yeah. but not from a aggressive emotional state. Mm-hmm. I feel like if we can question and have a conversation from a place of calm, 
then it's going to be able to help us come together more in just a lot of different areas in life. So that's my intention. Yeah. Starts with the nervous system though. It you does. know, like if we're, if we're like heavily triggered and you know, the conversation that we're having is, is, is triggering because it's disrupting, you know, whatever is going on in our minds, like, or, or it just is challenging us in a way where it's like, pushing us out of our makes comfort feel, zone. Yeah, it makes us feel uncomfortable. And we're like, ah, I need to protect myself. I'm going to scream and react yeah. and call you an idiot or whatever. Go, go straight into fight mode. Yeah, right? yeah. But you absolutely. can't solve anything that way, can you? It's really challenging to have... You can't be creative and solution-oriented in the ways that you would be if you were in more of that neutral state. Mm, I love that. Yeah. It's a question I ask everyone at the end. It's called the three truths. So imagine hypothetically it's your last day on earth many years away. Mm -hmm. You live as long as you want to live, but it's your last day, you know, as old as you want to be. And you accomplish all your wildest dreams. But for whatever reason, you've got to take all of your work with you to another place. Your books, your courses, your content. We don't have access anymore. But we have access to uh, three things that you would leave behind with the world, three Mm -hmm. lessons or three truths. What would you say are those three truths for you? They would be um, that you are not just what happened to you. You are abundantly so much more. Um, I would let people know that healing is... A lot of work. It sucks. <laughs> it, sh- it just bends you and twists uh-huh. you into different uncomfortable <laughs> shapes, but it is incredibly worth it. And that no matter where you are in your healing journey, today is always a good day to start to break the cycle. Mm, yeah. I want to acknowledge you, Mariel, for your journey, for stepping into this field of practice. You were telling me before about how you had another career in advertising in New York City. <laughs> yeah. And then you were volunteering on the weekends. Yeah. And you found more meaning and fulfillment in being of service to helping people mm-hmm. with these different challenges in their life. Yeah. And you said, I'm going to take on uh, eight more years of school. <laughs> yes. I'm going to take on this you know, college debt and student loans to follow a mission, a purpose that was more meaningful for you. Mm-hmm. It's really hard for a lot of people to do. And it so is. I really acknowledge you for listening to your heart, for listening to your truth, for taking that step and continually adding value to, to so many people in the world by doing the individual practice one-on-one that you do, the coaching you do, by sharing this content on social media, by working on books and courses. I really acknowledge you for stepping into this season of your life, which is adding a lot of value for you and to the world. It's really meaningful to witness and to see you overcome so much to get to where you're at. So thank you. I really acknowledge thank you for that, yeah. Thank you, I really appreciate that. Of course, yeah. of course. It's been a, it's been a journey I, I treasure and I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that I'm here and thank you for highlighting my journey. I of appreciate course, you for yeah, that. of course. Uh, people can follow you, we'll have everything linked up. Um, your website, drmarielbouquet.com, mm-hmm. social media, drmarielbouquet. Final question for you. Mm-hmm. What's your definition of greatness? Well, greatness to me, you know, it's found in everyday people, the people that alchemize from the ashes, you know, and, and become cycle breakers very mm-hmm. much like you have. Um, and I, I just think they're the bravest souls on this planet. Mm. And, that to me is really great. Mm. Mm-hmm. Gracias. Luis. Thank it's you. Such a pleasure. Appreciate it. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and it inspired you on your journey towards greatness. Make sure to check out the show notes in the description for a full rundown of today's show with all the important links. And also make sure to share this with a friend and subscribe over on Apple Podcasts as well. I really love hearing feedback from you guys. So share a review over on Apple and let me know what part of this episode resonated with you the most. And if no one's told you lately, I want to remind you that you are loved, you are worthy, and you are matter. And now it's time to go out there and do something great. At Metro, get an iPhone 12 with 5G and a dual camera system for $99.99. Take amazing pictures and share them instantly. And don't put up with life's yada yada. Yada, yada. Like photo bombers. Zoom, crop out, yada, yada. and bye. You don't take yada yada in life. Don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Get iPhone 12 with 5G with no activation fees and not a yada yada. Only at Metro by T-Mobile. Switch to Metro, bring your ID. This offer isn't available for customers currently at T-Mobile or that have been with Metro in the past 180 days.